The chains have been broken. He has a free hand. The Phantom Patriot will reclaim this land. He will inspire true Americans to fight. No one should steal our guaranteed rights. New World Order, cower in fear. Your globalist agenda will soon be made clear. The Constitution stands as our source of power. The truth in its words will win the final hour. You are listening to Failed State Update. This is Joseph L. Flatley. And um, I think I'm going to start doing kind of a series on QAnon. Um, Not every episode going forward, but, you know, starting with this one, I have just had some interesting interviews pop up that were really about not just QAnon, but about kind of the precursors to QAnon, like... For instance, I I won't spoil the surprise too much, but for instance, this episode is about uh, a character named Richard McCaslin, who called himself the Phantom Patriot. He was what they call a real-life superhero, which is a person who uh, dresses up in a superhero costume and goes out and, and picks a mission that they think will help the world. Some people are like, they go out and they're like, the guardian angels are like, Vigilantes, they like look for people causing trouble to fight. Um, I think mo- more of them, most of them, do things like, you know, neighborhood watch or going to soup kitchens or giving sandwiches to the homeless, stuff like that. The Phantom Patriot, he was a big time conspiracy theorist who was uh, influenced by people like Alex Jones and David Icke. He went to Bohemian Grove, which is this like social club for the ultra-rich that has been a lightning rod for conspiracy theorists for decades. And with good reason, because, you know, there are a bunch of corrupt oligarchs there. You know, so he raided the place with a gun and got into some trouble. It's a fascinating story, and there's a fascinating new book by an author named T. Krulos called American Madness that covers the story quite well, tells the life story of Richard McCaslin and really talks about how his life was like, it was like QAnon before QAnon. He died recently. He died really right before everything that he was into became like a huge mainstream media story. And it's kind of sad, actually. His story is fascinating, and I think it gives a little insight into what this collective insanity that the nation is experiencing consists of. Mainstream media didn't become aware of me until 2002 when I conducted a raid on the Bohemian Grove as the Phantom Patriot. I found out the hard way that if you use extreme tactics to expose the pedophiles and murderers of the Bohemian Club, like George Bush Sr. and Dick Cheney, you will get locked up. My name is T. Krulos. I'm a freelance journalist and author. I've written four books so far. American Madness is my fourth books. And all of my books, I think, have the common theme in that I love learning about subcultures, unusual social movements, uh, people that are doing something kind of outside of the norm. So um, American Madness, it really started when I was working on my first book, Uh, My first book was titled Heroes in the Night, Inside the Real-Life Superhero Movement. 
And I had discovered this, uh, you know, social movement or subculture of people who actually dress up in their own superhero personas. And I was like, wow, this is crazy, you know. Um, so I got really curious about it, and I found that there was a local guy to where I live here in Milwaukee called The Watchman. And I set up a, a meeting with him late one night at a city park near my house. And it was just this kind of awe-inspiring moment because I'm, I'm in this park waiting for him, and all of a sudden I see this guy wearing his superhero costume walking towards me. I was like, this is just so surreal. And, but I became very interested in the whole uh, subculture, and I really liked the Watchman. I thought he was a cool guy. I didn't um, quite understand all of it at first, but he seemed like a really sincere person that wanted to try to help other people out. So anyway, I started working on this book then, exploring the larger real-life superhero culture, and uh, one of the good ideas I had early on was I started a blog, also titled Heroes in the Night, and it was getting circulated quite a bit in the real-life superhero community, and also occasionally uh, media would reference my blog or something I had written on it. So um, maybe about a year, a little over a year into working on this book project, I get a message from a guy uh, named Richard McCaslin. And he says, I've heard about your book project, and I just want to tell you that I was a real-life superhero way back in the day, and I had done this mission to raid a place called the Bohemian Grove, and I went to prison for it. And if you'd like to talk, you know, I'll send you some more information. And I was like, whoa, what is going on here? Uh, I had never heard of the Bohemian Grove, so I looked that up right away, and I was like, oh, this is like secret society, conspiracy-type stuff. That's really interesting to me. So I just I researched the Grove a lot, and then I, uh, you know, replied to Richard and said, yeah, you know, I'm interested in this story, so just tell me more about who you are. And then that just really developed into uh, about eight years of corresponding with Richard, um, researching conspiracy theory and secret societies quite a bit, uh, having some small adventures here and there. Um, and then, you know, the book was just evolving a lot. Uh, and in uh, around 2015, it kind of took another direction, I think, because conspiracy started to become a lot more mainstream. So it just kind of blended into this uh, story that's about Richard, but it's also about conspiracy in our society in general. What a interesting time to be writing about this stuff. You know, I, um, I've mostly written about conspiracy culture and subcultures. I think we kind of have, we like the same kind of story, it seems. And, um, you know, forever it was like, it didn't seem like, unless you went into like academic circles, it didn't seem like conspiracy culture was seen as something that needs like serious understanding, serious look at. And then to see it kind of spin on a dime, and now it's like people people are taking it seriously because it's something that demands to be taken seriously. What year did you start working on the book? Uh, well, Richard first contacted me in 2010. You know, and I I knew right away, I think... Uh, he sent me, shortly after he had contacted me online, he sent me this pack that had, like, a comic that he had drawn and a handwritten letter and some paperwork related to his case, his court case. And I was like, okay, I think that there's a story here. I wasn't quite sure what it was. So, you know, I kind of slowly started working on 2010, and I would work on other projects and kind of put it on the back burner for a while, and then, you know, I would something would happen, and I would meet up with Richard. So, you know, I worked on and on off from 2010 up until I turned the book in uh, late, very late last year. And um, was there a point where you're kind of chugging along, you know, writing about this kind of fringe character and, you know, fringe culture, and then all of a sudden it kind of hit you that, like, wow, this is the story <laughs> of, of the, you know, of the 2016 or whenever? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that a couple of key points to me having that sort of revelation. Uh, number one, 2015, the campaign of Donald Trump. I mean, here's a guy who 
uses conspiracy theories pretty consistently um, as a way to attack his opponents or to, you know, try to sway public opinion a certain way. So I was like, this guy, you know, he's embraces conspiracy theories very openly and he has the most powerful position in the country. And then, you know, another key moment that quickly followed that was 2016 uh, Pizzagate and the raid of Edward uh, Welsh to Comet Ping Pong. Um, that struck me so much because his story is very similar to Richard McCaslin. They were both inspired by a, a documentary about um, children being held captive as slaves. Um, you know, so I th think that they had this intention that they were going to do something really good by uh, helping save these child slaves. But in both cases, of course, they were very misguided by conspiracies that they had heard. And, you know, their raids were very similar, too. Um, they weren't like a mass shooter that just wanted to shoot people up. They they went in there and checked it out and didn't find anything. So I was like, wow, this story is, is so similar to Richard's. And then from there, I mean, conspiracy is just kind of blown up, uh, especially this year. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I'll definitely say where I kind of realized that there was a sea change is like it went from me like pitching stories about these kind of fringe things that nobody would buy because nobody was interested to like the Atlantic having like their best writers on it. Like in a, it was just like, wow, there's something here. Um, people are. But even even that, I was kind of late to the game with QAnon. Like it just seems so absurd to me, and I'd been following this stuff for so long and seen so many other ridiculous things that I it just never occurred to me that it was like kind of a force to be reckoned with. And then I was interviewing somebody who was like a researcher, studied online radicalization and QAnon, and he kind of like slapped some sense into me. <laughs> it was like, no. And then now, of course, you can't get away from it. Yeah, it that it definitely it definitely QAnon took a different direction than I thought it might. I thought it would kind of you know die away in some corner of the internet, but it really was the opposite, and it's it's just out of control now. Well, you know, we're so used to seeing. I think in the last ten years or so, you know, not super long, but in the last however ten years, maybe like these ten fifteen years, these um, kind of grassroots or pseudo grassroots um movements popping up and then dissolving like yeah tea party patriots or pizza right. gay yeah. QAnon, you know it's just like um and i just i'm so curious about like i wouldn't be surprised if in six months or in a year we don't hear about QAnon. you know something else has taken its place possibly crazier and weirder yeah, I think uh, it, it is kind of starting to morph a little bit. Like, um, I think a lot of people that are into QAnon aren't especially into uh, the messages from Q anymore. Yes. Like, they don't really know or care who Q mm -hmm. is. They just like that there is this uh, like-minded group of people who really hate Democrats and liberals and stuff like that, that they can bond with. You know? And... Uh, and who won't challenge their ideas that they're satanic pedophiles or, or whatever. Well, let's let's talk about Richard McCaslin. Um, so you so you met this guy and he was a, a real life superhero or had been. Um, tell me about him and like your first impression of him and what you learned about his his real life superhero career right at the outset there. Yeah, well, you know, I think something that really grabbed me as far as wanting to write about him was that he had uh, a genuinely interesting life story, I think, you know? It's kind of this, uh, he has this dream of being the all-American superhero, and he's trying to pursue that path, and it kind of winds around to a lot of weird uh, uh, spots. So, for example, you know, uh, he kind of followed this dream and went to stuntman school out in California. 
which his his school was taught by a very interesting character named Kim Kahana. Um, and, you know, he has this sort of rough experience at stunt school, but he's very excited. Uh, but he doesn't really find um, the work that he wants to. He does end up uh, working as a stunt person at a Six Flags Batman stunt show. So he did get to portray Batman flying over this crowd of people on a wire, you know. Um, And then he just kind of wanders from job to job, and uh, he's creative. One thing that was impressive to me was that um, he is a creative individual, so he made his own superhero costumes. Uh, He was an illustrator, which his artwork is very interesting. It's, it's kind of weird, but it's very interesting. Um, and then in the late nineties, his life, um, takes some pretty rough hits. Uh, he was an only child and both of his parents died. Um, he didn't have a lot of friends. I don't think he had a creative project that kind of fell apart around the same time. Um, he had an unhealthy fascination with a country singer and like he was just kind of down and out and he's alone in Austin, Texas. He's originally from Ohio, but he moved down to to Austin, Texas where he encounters, um, someone who's in the news all the time now, but the time was this sort of a local Austin personality, Alex Jones. Um, so he sees this documentary that Alex Jones has produced, uh, where he had snuck into the Bohemian Grove, which is this retreat, uh, for the Bohemian club, which is a men's only club that has very wealthy, powerful people in it. Um, they have this retreat out in the Redwood forest and conspiracy theorists love this, not just because it's a gathering of all these rich, powerful men, but they do this very bizarre opening ritual to their summer retreat where they do a mock sacrifice in front of a, a statue of an owl. So Alex Jones makes this documentary and he has this spin on it that, you know, hey, maybe they're actually sacrificing real people out there at the Bohemian Grove. And Richard gets upset about this and decides that this is going to be his superhero mission to take down these satanic, powerful people who are, you know, murdering children. So he adopts this superhero persona, the Phantom Patriot, um, and he raids the Bohemian Grove, where he doesn't find any satanic rituals, um, but uh, he does get arrested and spends several years in jail. I don't want to ask you to um, diagnose him. I, I, you know, I find that very... It's insulting, but also, you know, rather than dismiss, I don't want to like dismiss him, just label him as something X, Y, or Z, but obviously it takes a very rare individual to put on a superhero costume and raid Bohemian Grove or raid anything. Like, what do you kind of think was going on with him at the time that led him to thinking, oh, this just sounds like a good idea, you know? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, he later, it took him a while, but he later expressed that he had a very bad relationship with his father. Uh, He loved his mother quite a bit. And later in life, I think he grew a little bit closer to his father. Um, But, you know, when he's growing up in the uh, 60s, 70s, um, your escapism was kind of limited. You know, no internet, no cable TV. Uh, So I think that, you know, comic books really became very important to his fantasy life and a way that he escaped his abusive father. And, you know, he got picked on in school sometimes, stuff like that. So I think the superhero idea, like, really got into his brain at a young age. And, um... You know, he really wanted to be a superhero, so he joined the Marines and um, uh, went to stunt school and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm not sure how to diagnose him. Uh, One of the interesting things uh, that I got was the Secret Service file on Richard McCastle. After I filed Freedom of Information Act, 
Um, and they had, you know, a Secret Service psychiatrist um, diagnose him with things like uh, OCD and um, uh, certain personality disorders. And they really mentioned, like, some of the disappointing things he had had happen in life, uh, like not being able to find a solid career path or a romantic relationship as being factors that, you know, just kind of made him uh, desperate for something to happen. It almost sounds like he had a rough patch and most of us or all of us have had some point where they've hit a real rough patch and it's like, yeah, how do I deal with it? And he just happened to like have the right combination of things going on where it made sense to put on a superhero costume and, it's really some random factors too, you know? Uh, yeah, a lot of people hit a rough patch and they'll often deal with that in an unhealthy way, you know, the, whether that's substance abuse or violence of some sort. Uh, it just happens that he was in Austin, Texas, um, that he had cable access, uh, which is where, you know, Alex Jones Infowars got online pretty early, but in around 2000, um, he's still relying a lot on his radio show being broadcast on AM radios and uh, showing his documentaries on cable access and then selling DVDs of, of the documentaries. So Richard happens to be in Austin where um, uh, Alex Jones is broadcasting his documentaries on cable access. He sees that at this vulnerable time. And I think it was just like the right place and the right time to kind of bounce around in his head and, you know, give him some direction that he wanted. He wanted some direction to do something. How did McCaslin kind of compare to other real life superheroes? Like, are there, are there other real life superheroes that kind of take things as far as he does? Or is he kind of unique in that? He is very unique. Um, uh, so, Early on, uh, I was still working on the book, and he had asked me, he went on a protest tour after he was done with his parole. He went on a peaceful protest tour, um, and he knew that I was kind of down with the real-life superhero community and uh, asked me if I would uh, post a letter that he had handwritten in a real-life superhero forum. I was part of this forum. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll do that. But sure enough, the response to him uh, at first was pretty negative. They didn't understand this guy. They, they were weirded out. Um, they viewed him unfavorably because, of course, because of this Bohemian Raid Grove, he had a criminal record. Um, so a lot of them were uh, had animosity towards him, uh, didn't like him, didn't like his whole story. Uh, later, I think that he did make some friends in that community um, because I think real-life superheroes are also kind of forgiving about, you know, stuff like that. Um, so he made some contacts in there. For a while, there's a group from California called the Pacific Protectorate. Um, and one of their members is somewhat of a conspiracy theorist himself. Uh, his name's Motormouth which is uh, a name he got because he likes to talk a lot. Uh, but they sort of embraced him, and he joined their team for a while, and he was also invited to some other real-life superhero events. So he made some connections, but he had a lot of trouble maintaining any sort of friendship. And I think that's because he, was just very, he had become very paranoid, suspicious. Um, he could have a quick temper, so uh, he ended up kind of parting ways with a lot of people he had briefly made friends with there. So how long was he in jail as a result of the Bohemian Grove raid? About six and a half years. Okay. And then he was on parole for another two or three years. So when did he get out of jail? Um, he got out of jail in 2008. Okay. Yeah. And he was off of parole on, in 2011. Okay. And... um. At some point, he came into some money, right? Before, yes. So um, 
both of his, and this is another key factor in everything, I think. Both of his parents die. Uh, they leave him a pretty big inheritance. Um, you know, almost $700,000. Uh, so he has all this money, but, you know, he doesn't really... Uh, he has all this money, but he doesn't really have a connection. Like, doesn't have family anymore. He doesn't really have any friends. He doesn't have a significant other. Uh, but he can do whatever he wants. So if he wants to buy a superhero costume and a bunch of weapons and sort of plan this trip out to the Bohemian Grove, there's nothing stopping him. Um, and then he uh, he went to prison pretty shortly after that, so he didn't spend... Well, he, I mean, he had legal fees and he had to pay a fine for destruction of property in the Bohemian Grove because he did set one of the buildings on fire, even though it was quickly put out. But, um, you know, this money, most of it was still there when he got out of prison. So, um, you know, he didn't... That was a factor in his lifestyle, I think, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine that somebody who's maybe not the most stable if i can say that and you know doesn't have family to keep him grounded and doesn't have to have a job to keep him grounded you know they just, you throw you know more than half a million dollars at a guy it has to be kind of an unstabilizing yeah thing um a, a blank check for mayhem as they say <laughs> yeah yeah what were kind of the long-term effects of you know, he didn't raid a, a pizza restaurant. He raided Bohemian Grove. Like, if he had picked another day, it could have been... Some of the world's most powerful people could have been in the line of fire, potentially. Like, I have to imagine that there's some sort of ramifications beyond just what happened to him legally. Oh, I definitely think so. Um, I mean, there's a couple things. One is he uh, he began to see a deep symbolism and conspiracy about himself in stuff that wasn't there. Um, so, for example, uh, he didn't get a lot of media attention, but Les Claypool from Primus wrote a song about him. At first, he was very uh, stoked. He thought this was like a folk song. But then, you know, he saw the music video for this, and he saw this, like, symbolism in it that Les Claypool was mocking him, and maybe the Bohemian Grove had helped set this up so he could mock him. Um, there was a movie that came out that was sort of a parody of the Bohemian Grove, and he thought that that was directly related to him. Um, he's read some comic storylines where he thinks that the comic books have been inspired by him. So he began to see... Uh, and at first, you know, he hand-wrote letters to me and sent them because he didn't want an email because... He thought that all of these, uh, you know, alphabet soup agencies were heavily monitoring him. Now, I mean, I'm sure he, I know he was probably on some lists and stuff like that. Uh, for example, in 2011, when he does this protest where he's going city to city, um, he gets stopped by police officers near the White House. I mean, because he looks kind of suspicious. He's wearing this costume and he's holding a sign that talks about how Obama, who was president at the time, is a reptilian alien. So they run his name, and then all of a sudden, they're very, very interested in him. And they actually, they search his vehicle, they search his hotel room twice. You know, they have a long conversation with him. So obviously, his name was a red flag. I don't know how closely they were monitoring him. I mean, uh, but they're definitely keeping a tab on him. So, I mean, he wasn't completely wrong like a lot of conspiracy theories or theorists not completely wrong but you know they really uh, exaggerate or um you know pump up some pieces of the story yeah yeah and he had going back to when he was in austin he had met alex jones at least once correct yes he made the decision that he's going to do this raid on the bohemian grove um, and, uh, that's probably the, actually the last person that he talked to, um, until he met up with the police, uh, at his standoff at the Bohemian Grove. Uh, he stops in there into the, um, 
cable access station just because he wants to meet him uh, before he does this mission that's possibly going to end his life. Um, just kind of, I don't know, get a chance to meet him in person. So they have a brief conversation, uh, Richard said. He didn't mention anything about him raiding the Bohemian Grove because he didn't want to get Alex Jones in trouble by, you know, being viewed as an accomplice or whatever. But they talked a little bit about the Bohemian Grove. Um, and then he says that Alex Jones told him he had to leave for a second and he'd be right back. You know, maybe he's going to the bathroom or something. But Richard sees this as that he has maybe spooked Alex Jones out. So he just kind of quietly leaves. And, and, you know, his next step is to drive up to uh, Carson City, Nevada, where he lived in an apartment for a couple weeks, but didn't really have contact with anyone. And then, you know, decides that he's going to drive up to the Grove and infiltrate. So, so what were some of the other conspiracy theorists who influenced him or some of the conspiracy theory ideas that he became attracted to as time went on? Yeah. So, you know, his beliefs, um, after the Bohemian Grove, and this is where he's a little bit different than like the Pizzagate shooter. Uh, the, the Pizzagate guy goes in there and he kind of is like, Oh, I'm wrong about this. Uh, but Richard goes to prison and these ideas just kind of stew and they continue to grow. Um, he kind of, uh, disliked Alex Jones because Alex Jones did not come to his defense at all. In fact, you know, he spoke negatively about Richard. So he was like, all right, I'm kind of done with this guy. But when he gets out, he becomes very heavily influenced by David Icke, um, who is a British conspiracy theorist. Uh, he's well known as being sort of the originator of the reptilian theory that there's a race of reptilians that have infiltrated uh, our governments at the highest level. Um, and he becomes very fascinated with him. Uh, he goes to one of his talks while he's still on parole in California. And uh, he's so influenced by him. And this is just amazing for me to think. Richard is was very hardcore Christian when he raided the Bohemian Grove. You know, uh, very, very much into Christianity. Um, left the Bible verse behind at the Grove as sort of a calling card. In prison, he became a Jehovah's Witness. But after he uh, gets out and starts reading the work of David Icke, he drops religion entirely and becomes... Uh, agnostic pretty much so i thought that was a pretty profound impact to have on him that he'd be willing to drop religious faith almost entirely because of this guy um and then you know he just he's this what i would call a super conspiracy theorist which is funny because of his superhero persona too um but he just everything everything was connected into this massive conspiracy um there's another book that very much influenced him called transformation of uh, america uh, by kathy o'brien and her husband which is just a totally off the rails book uh, but he took it very literally as being you know true fact my name is richard mccaslin 10 years ago I was arrested outside the Bohemian Grove. My goal was to expose the Bohemians' crimes of pedophilia, torture, murder, and treason against the American people. In 2002, I failed to convince a jury that these atrocities were occurring because I had the proof. Today, however, I hold in my hand all the proof that America needs to condemn these sociopaths. This book, Transformation of America, was written by Kathy O'Brien and her husband Mark Phillips. 
Kathy O'Brien is the only vocal and recovered survivor of the CIA's MKUltra Project Monarch mind control operation. I will now read pages 170 and 171 of Trans. Kathy O'Brien writes, My purpose at the grave was sexual in nature, and therefore my perceptions were limited to a sex slave's viewpoint. Slaves of advancing age or with failing programming were sacrificially murdered at random in the wooded grounds of Bohemian Grove, and I felt it was simply a matter of time until it would be me. Rituals were held at a giant concrete owl monument on the banks of the Russian River. Yeah, I would, um, maybe I shouldn't, but I would say that if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, they could Google it and find the PDF online. It is the weirdest thing. It's still, like, number one in, like, batshit crazy American conspiracy literature. And I definitely knew what you're talking about when you said, you know, your biggest regret was that you had to read it twice. <laughs> had to read it twice, yeah. Um, it is, is just... It's probably the craziest book I've ever read, I think. I can't think of anything that quite compares to it. And it's uh, it's just so disturbing to read, I guess is the word I would say. Not because I think it's true, but you know, I feel that she's obviously had some bad things happen to her, but not the bad things that she describes in her book. There's so many, like, Alex Jones, David Icke, you know, Mark Phillips, like, I would say that there's a chance that they don't believe any of it. There's probably a much greater chance that they believe it, but they're also, it's also like a business enterprise, a con, you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of like a really weird amalgamation of the both of both of those things. And it's really hard to tell like where one ends and the other begins. Yeah. I mean, some of them, especially Alex Jones, you know, um, I'm not sure what he's worth now, but I know at one point he was making $10 million a year via Infowars. A lot of that was from selling uh, these kind of um, snake oil type uh, diet supplements, which um, someone, I mentioned in the book, I think it was BuzzFeed, sent these to a lab to be analyzed. And, you know, they found that some of the stuff like the, the alpha male omega pill or whatever was really just like iodine. We just marked up iodine like 15 times the market price. So, you know, I think that he probably believes a lot of stuff that he says, but he also knows that he's playing this character as one of his lawyers admitted at one point where he's got to say outrageous stuff to get that, those clicks in. So people buy his products and, you know, uh, watch his show and stuff like that. Um, so money, I think, is a motivation. In the case of, like, Trump, um, I think Trump, there's a couple things there. One, he kind of thinks that his gut instinct is a fact. So if he hears something like um, Obama's birth certificate is fake, he's going to think, that sounds right to me, therefore it must be a fact. But the other thing is he knows that it's a really good, dirty weapon to use to try to attack someone. Uh, you know, he got super pissed off at Joe Scarborough a couple months ago. And so he started, like, talking about this conspiracy about how Joe Scarborough had killed one of his interns. And he did that just because he hates that guy and he wants to attack him. And he knows that's a good way to to throw a punch, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess what the real tragedy here is that Alex Jones is promoting, you know, this, like, disinfo or misinfo or just bullshit about uh, Bohemian Grove or crisis actors. And Richard McCaslin's fallen for it. Yeah. And other people, too. Lots of other people. Yeah, lots. Yeah. More every day, it seems. So it's like, you know, not only is this bullshit you know, making him rich, making Alex Jones rich, but real people are being hurt. I went to Comet Ping Pong a little while after that. I guess you could call it a shooting. A shot was fired, but, you know, after the raid. And um, 
I was pretty horrified. Like, you know, I think you made this point in your book, you know, it's kind of like referred to as like a dive bar or something. And, but I went in and it's like, it's a family restaurant. Like it's, there were lots of kids there. They were all running around. It reminded me of this like weird little just family run pizza restaurant that we would go to once in a while as kids, you know, parents give you a bunch of quarters and it's like, all right, go play pinball or, you know, go play ping pong in this case. And, and to think of like a guy walking into that fully strapped, carrying an assault rifle, like it was, it's really horrifying. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of this is like this, the bigger culture war in America too. Um, You know, like I said in the book, or like you were saying, if I went to Comet Ping Pong, uh, which I'd love to visit, I'm gonna, I'm hoping to get to DC someday soon and get a slice of pizza there. Uh, it sounds like a place that I would really enjoy going to. You know, I like weird art. Uh, I'm not offended if uh, staff members are drag queens or whatever. I mean, uh, if there's, you know, it sounds like my type of place. But to someone who is very steeped in this, you know, evil liberal agenda place. A place like that, I imagine, would be uh, very scary and weird to them because it's not normal or whatever, for in their opinion. So I think a lot of this kind of spins out of that fear of weird art and liberal culture evolves some of this stuff a lot. I'm still, I'm always surprised to the at the level of like which kind of red state Americans, when you get out into the country or whatever, are shocked at things that to me seem very harmless <laughs> you know? right. it's like yeah, yeah. like how is there anything shocking in this world anymore um, <laughs> but um but as a as a superhero richard mccaslin was what was he doing you know it's like real life superheroes have a lot of different missions some of them actually go out and you know get in fights some of them you know you know give food at the soup kitchen or whatever like what was mccaslin doing in his superhero costume um well i mean it, it was funny too because we talked about his kind of introduction to this culture he was very critical of them at first too he was like hey look i took on a real mission of uh trying to combat a satanic pedophile ring whereas you guys are walking around handing out sandwiches to homeless people which the Salvation Army already does. Um, but, I mean, I think he kind of wanted to be part of that group anyway. So I think, you know, he kind of, uh, he did sort of conform to them a little bit as far as he joined them in some missions, handing out food and supplies to homeless people. Um, he participated in a charity event at a comic book store uh, in Oakland. Um and uh, he did that peaceful protest tour. So, you know, he was just traveling around protesting outside of either famous landmarks or places allegedly associated with conspiracy. So so where did he travel to and like what was he? Did he have signs? Was he handing stuff out? Like how did that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought this was uh, possibly good for him. Uh, his parole ended in 2011. And then, like, the day after his parole was up, he hit the road and he did uh, all 48 lower states. Um, so it was kind of this coast-to-coast uh, American tour where he went to at least one city in every state and did a protest. Um, you know, sometimes it was conspiracy-related, like in front of a Masonic temple, or, you know, he protested at Ground Zero in New York. Or sometimes it was just a famous monument like uh, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, something like that. But I was like, all right, this is this is good for him. He's exercising his First Amendment rights. He's getting to see the country and travel around. Hopefully that's good for him. Uh, and I think it was for the moment, but, you know, he just was on a downward path. Yeah, and, and what is that like? You know, I definitely get the impression from the book that this wasn't just a story to you, you know, like you definitely got close to the guy in some way, however close you could get to him, you know, one could, he also seems kind of 
self-isolating a lot of time. Like, what was it like for you kind of, did you have a feeling that he was on a downward trajectory or that he was a tragic figure or were you just kind of like, how did you look at it? How was, what was it like getting to know him over the course of how many years was it? About eight years. I corresponded with him. I met him uh, three different times in person. Um, when he was on that tour traveling coast to coast, he came to Milwaukee and uh, I spent some time with him protesting here in downtown Milwaukee. Uh, and then the next day I joined him. He did a, a protest at O'Hare Airport, which is outside of Chicago. You know, it's about Chicago's about an hour and a half south of me. Um, so I met him there and then he on the 10th anniversary of his raid of the Bohemian Grove in 2012. Uh, he did a protest in San Francisco in front of the Bohemian Club headquarters, which is uh, in downtown San Francisco. So I joined him out for, uh, uh, for that. And then in 2015, uh, I visited him in his, as home, which was in a very weird little desert community called Pahrump uh, in Nevada. So, you know, during this whole time, um, I definitely, I didn't agree with his theories. Uh, he could be hard to communicate with sometimes, but it's just sort of, uh, you talk to someone for this amount of time and, um, they become your sort of weird friend, you know? And, and like I said, I thought his, his uh, life was interesting. I thought his ideas were interesting. Um, I felt bad for him. Uh, he seemed to be very lonely uh, or and not making good connections and not really finding something that was working for him. So throughout the book, you know, there's a few chapters where I sort of end the chapter talking about how I had hoped, you know, like he did this tour. I was like, good, this is good for him. Maybe he's learning something about America traveling through it. Uh, after he did his protests in front of the Bohemian Club in 2012, I was like, maybe this he got to release something from his system by getting to um, protest in front of this club and have a, having a couple of supporters there with him. I kept hoping he would find some like closure or um, not. I didn't think he was going to give up conspiracy beliefs. But I was hoping he'd find something that would give him a little bit more balance or something like that. Uh, and it ended up not hap happening. Um, so, you know, I just, I felt sort of badly for him. I think that his life could have gone down a different path, especially with some of the creative abilities that he had. Um, I thought he could be a really nice guy and, you know, he was polite and he wasn't... You know, I start to tell this story to some people and they're like, oh, this guy sounds like an idiot. I don't think he was stupid, you know. He was well-read on things like American history and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I just wish that he could have found some balance or gone down a slightly different path. And, you know, his, like, did he see himself as an outsider artist? Because, I mean, what I've seen of his comic books, and I hope they're available someday and like his videos on youtube like that stuff's awesome like it's definitely out there but it's really interesting and really well done um did he see himself as an artist at all i mean i guess he kind of would have if he was making comic books but like what part did that play into this whole thing of richard mccaslin i think um one thing that he really wanted more than anything was for someone uh, to hear his story or for him to be able to tell his story in some way. Um, and he was very disappointed. He made numerous attempts over years um, to try to get people interested in his life story, but he just got pretty much silence in return, uh, except for me, pretty much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, his comics I, I describe in the book they're kind of outsider art, but because he's read so many comic books, he like understands what a comic storyline should look like. So they're actually the layout is very sensible. But his art has this, this kind of weird, you know, like the they all the characters have these big bug eyes and they're like always kind of angry or afraid. And 
Um, his videos too, you know, uh, I describe the last video that he made was um, he found these public domain characters, Stardust and Phantoma. And he made this video um, that he was hoping that would be a big hit and maybe, uh, you know, late night uh, Cartoon Network or something like that would pick up the show or that he'd be able to sell a bunch of copies on his own. Um, and it was good. It was uh, it was kind of this campy superhero show. It was almost like Adam West, Batman 66 type of thing. And I was like, all right, I can I can get into this. But then, you know, maybe about halfway through the video, he starts talking about conspiracy stuff. I was like, oh, you're going to lose so many people because they're going to be like, why are these characters suddenly talking about the Masons, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I have kind of like a group of friends that, you know, kind of like a movie club since the uh, pandemic hit, you know, we all get on Zoom and watch movies. movie together and it's usually like we usually we seek out stuff like exactly like richard made and um which i was really surprised that i had never heard of him uh because he's right up my alley but um yeah art and polemic don't really have like a great relationship it's like there's so many of these movies where you watch them and it's like grinds to a halt when they start like you know getting into the the writer's theories about, you know, big government or something. It's Right. I really think, uh, and I hope, I think that Richard's videos and his comics will slowly find sort of a, a cult following, which I think he was sort of hoping would happen, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight like that, you know? Right, right. So, um, yeah, I hope that, I think that his art will have sort of a cult appreci- appreciation as sort of like a weird outsider art type of thing, you know. I guess it bears repeating, you know, if people aren't familiar with the story, like, it's all one big project. Like, his persona as the Phantom Patriot and his protests and his his um, comic books and movies, they all hinge around this idea that the Phantom Patriot's going to, like, bring down the Illuminati or New World yeah. Order or something. Yeah, and especially a lot of his artwork after he went to jail is um, uh, there's a there's a chapter titled about this. He says, you know, I know a lot of people would sort of view my art as being a revenge fantasy, but I'm I'm going to say that it's art therapy. <laughs> so, um, which, however you view it, uh, revenge fantasy or art therapy, that is really the theme of a, a lot of his later. Uh, artwork yeah yeah and and you were in one of his movies is that right yeah um so 2015 was when i first thought that i might be wrapping up the book uh and i wanted to capture him in his own environment um so i emailed him and i said hey richard i'd, I'd love to come down the prompt um and interview you but uh in addition to the interview we can do whatever you want okay I'm interested to uh, to just kind of follow you around. And so I thought, you know, maybe we'd go to the comic book store together or he'd show me around Pahrump, uh and stuff like that. But instead, he wants me to co-star in this Phantom Patriot action-packed video. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I asked for it. You know, I said I'd do whatever you wanted to. So we had this grueling, like, three-day shoot where... He shot this adventure where me and him like uh, battled Illuminus, which is uh, this villain with a giant eyeball for a head, supposed to be the leader of the Illuminati. And um, he he wanted me to do my own stunts and drive this ATV down a cliff, and I almost broke my damn leg like trying to shoot this stunt. And it was this hot and long. And by the time uh, I was done with that shoot i was i wasn't uh angry at him i was just like burnt out yeah I was like, all right dude oh this was quite a weekend i'll i'll talk to you later yeah need to need to decompress a little bit after that i'm sure but but um i i stayed at his house while we were doing this he had a guest bedroom uh so i slept over at his house for two nights uh people have asked me before if i was afraid of him um I, and I don't think that I was, you know. I guess it was in the back of my mind that he uh, was capable of 
possibly flipping out something. But um, I don't, he also had a very strong moral compass where he did not want to indiscriminately kill people or something like that. So, Like what did you get from actually being in his living space and seeing him operate on the day to day, you know, for that period of time that maybe like you didn't, was there anything about that where kind of like made an impression or? Well, um, I was very interested to see his house was another reason I wanted to go. Uh, so one thing that was really amazing was he had this large, uh, Poisonet, I think is what it's called. He had this large garage, almost like a miniature airplane hangar, which he had turned into his sort of private superhero headquarters. He had like his uh, workout equipment in there. Um, he had a target practice for his crossbow where he could shoot when it had a reptilian alien head. And he had artwork on the walls and his costumes displayed on mannequins. So it was like this homemade superhero headquarters. But inside his house, again, I found it to be very lonely. Um, it was uh, very sparse. You know, he had some furniture, but he didn't have any artwork on the walls, really. Um, he had this room that was empty except for his comic book collection. He didn't have a lot of, like, food or dishes. Uh, it just felt kind of empty in there, you know. And it was way out in Pahrump, which is, like, you know, it's way out in the desert, so. And um, when did he die? What year? He died in 2018. Okay, and um, maybe you can kind of explain what happened there. Um, so what happened was, uh, well, I thought I might finish this book in 2015, but I didn't think that it was, it wasn't there yet. But I was still working on it, and I actually had just been talking to Feral House about publishing the book. Um, and they had um, good suggestions as far as incorporating some of this uh, conspiracy culture that's happening right now uh, into it. So it could be a little bit bigger picture than Richard. So I'm having these conversations with Feral House uh, and I'm, I'm gearing up to work on the book again. I hadn't talked to Richard in a while, which was not super unusual. Uh, we wouldn't talk to each other for a few months sometimes. It was in the back of my head where I was like, I should talk to him soon because I'm probably going to have a final round of questions for him. So one day, this is in uh, spring of 2019, uh, I get a, a text from a guy named Lon, who was really one of Richard's only consistent friends throughout the years. He had met him in stuntman school uh, way back in the 80s, and uh, Lon had been a very good friend to him. Uh, he had sorted out a lot of his legal affairs while he was in prison. Um, he tried to get him things that he needed in prison, um, you know, and just was a good friend and advisor to him. So I get a text from Lon saying, hey, please call me as soon as you can. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, either Richard went off the deep end again for some reason, or he's dead. Uh, and sure enough, uh, we discovered that in, or Lon told me that in October 2018, uh, he had loaded some stuff up into his trunk, or into his truck, and then um, had driven out to Washington, D.C., where uh, he died by suicide. So um, that's all I knew right away. And then some of the details came out. Um, he had parked by uh, the headquarters of the Scottish Rite of Freemasons there in Washington, D.C., um, which is where this suicide happened. Uh, and then nobody knew about it because the police had determined that his next of kin was like a second cousin or something like that. So they informed her, and I don't know the whole situation there, but it sounded like she had not been in contact with him very much at all. So she's kind of like, oh, okay. Uh, he had written a handwritten will that named his friend Lon as the executor of his estate. But that didn't, you know, even 
it just got like thrown aside or something for the time being. So no one other than the second cousin really knew that he had died until spring. So that was, you know, a few months later. Um, and I was sad, surprised, you know, I was kind of like, well, I'm not shocked because he's kind of out there in the desert and his money was probably slowly dwindling away and he couldn't find a job. He had tried to find a job everywhere and, uh, he wasn't finding this great success with these videos he had produced. He also mentioned that he was having some physical uh, issues that were starting to bug him. And so that was, that was it. He uh, decided to make his last stand out there in Washington, DC, October, 2018. Mm -hmm. But we didn't find out until I think it was March or April, 2019. You know, it's, there's something like doubly tragic about that. Like, first of all, you know, there's the life lost you know that's tragic but also like for better or for worse he really is so relevant now <laughs> you know like at this particular point in history his story is so relevant and for him him to take his own life you know like a year or two before that yeah you know he could have he could have been a folk hero to these people, I think, you know, the Phantom Patriot might have had his own, you know, following. And uh, remember, there's this, I mean, it was just a goofy thing, but there was this Let's Raid Area 51 that had a huge interest, huge, huge interest. I mean, not a lot of people actually showed up there at Area 51, but there was, the interest was there. So I was like, you know, yeah, he really could have been big in, in 2020. Because um, his ideas, when I first started working on this in 2010, like you were saying, these ideas are very fringe. And if anyone was like talking about it, it was like, oh, you mean those isolated guys wearing tinfoil hats or something. But now it's like a popular movement, you know? Do you see his story then as saying something important about the political time we're in now, or even like as a cautionary tale or. Absolutely. Um, we're going to see more stories like this. I'm, I'm very confident. Uh, maybe not like in such a dramatic fashion where people dress up like a superhero and raid a secret retreat. But I, I mean, we're already seeing that this year. There's a lot of QAnon stories about, there was a woman that was live streaming uh, her drive uh, up to New York, and she had like a bunch of knives in her car, and she's talking about killing Joe Biden. Um, There's a story just from a week or two ago where uh, a woman who believed QAnon stuff was like trying to ram a car with her car because she believed that the person driving was part of this pedophile ring for some reason. So I think it's it's a cautionary tale that's very applicable right now. So um, I think it's I think that's worth reading about these people and understanding where they came from and what their ideas are, because those are people you might uh, very well encounter. It could be a person sitting next to you on a bus or something, you know. Hello, humans. This is Ganick, an Elvis enthusiast from the planet. Memphis 3. Help me, Captain America. I'm trapped in the Tesseract, and I can't walk out. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out. Because I love you too much, baby. Hey, don't be hating on the king, PP. There's the extraterrestrial highway, T. The back gate to Area 51... Should be less than an hour from here. T should probably engage his cloaking app now. Illuminus may have drones in the area. Will do. Comlink, engage cloaking effect. So that was the uh, strange and true tale of the Phantom Patriot as uh, told by T. Krulos. So I guess I better mention that 
his book American Madness is out on out now on Feral House Books, and um, I strongly recommend you check it out. And also, I have a book that is being published by Feral House as well next year, twenty twenty one. I hope at least. Uh, be sure to check T out on Twitter and check his book out and check out his weekly column uh, that he puts on his blog. Uh, weird something. What is it? T's Weird Week. Uh, com, And I will uh, have all the links to that stuff in the show notes. It grows.